truth. So for many of us, if you're like me, we do change our character a little bit around different people because we want to fit in. When we're talking about our faith, it can be a bit of a tiptoeing process. We uh, might leave the stuff out about judgment and hell and skirt over maybe Jesus the only way. Um, And we put in lots about, oh, everyone's loved, God loves everyone. And that is great. That is the message But we've also left a little bit out. Now, I think about Paul and his team coming. If ever there was a time they were going to admit something, leave something out, bend it slightly, change their character, this is now. Because they write, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you is not without results. That's first one. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Well, let me tell you about their treated outrageously. They were stripped naked, they were shackled in the shikawar, and they were flogged, and they were chucked in prison. And it wouldn't have been a nice prison with a TV, it would have been dark, and it would have been damp, and it would have been revolting. That was how they were treated. So if ever there was a time they were going to have a little break, it would have been now. Let's just stay here for a while. Let's just recuperate. Let's tone it down a bit. Let's not say so much. Let's not go to the synagogues. Let's go to someone else who might agree. But no, they carried on. They read on. They, uh, he writes about how they didn't do it from impure motives. They didn't have an agenda. They didn't try and trick them, make it more appealing in the message. They realized they'd been entrusted with the gospel. So they realized that they'd got a message that God had given them, that he wanted them to do something with. They didn't use flattery. They didn't try and tell people they weren't that bad or they'd kind of got it right or God wanted them because he really liked them more than other people. He says we didn't put a mask on for financial gain. And this is the key bit, verse 6. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. They wanted only God's approval. And three times Paul stresses this. I'm only here to get my approval from God, not from man. And he holds this. It's like a mantra in his head. And we need to hold that too, that mantra. I want the approval from God, not from man. And as Nay said when she got up, what was she thinking about? I wonder what they'll think of me. And even though I know Nay has the mantra in her head, it's a constant battle, isn't it? Every day we are being, there's something deep in us going, but that person doesn't like you very much. What if you say that they won't like you? They won't want you. They'll reject you. They're going to talk about you afterwards. They're going to say, oh, it wasn't very good. Uh, Lou was a bit rubbish today, wasn't she? Oh, just so boring. I just was waiting for her to stop talking. Every day is a battle, isn't it? Whenever we put ourselves on the line, when we're a little bit there, even if it's just, you know, mentioning the word of Jesus, we can often go home with this massive 
conversation going through our head. I wonder what they thought about me then. And I wonder if they're laughing at me now. And will they, will they invite me to the next thing? Because I was a bit weird that day. We all struggle with this. But we need to be knowing that our integrity, that integrity-wise, who are we trying to please? It's got to be God and no one else. And that's not to say that that is easy. We've got to share that with people. We've got to get prayer from people. We've got to have support from people. And remember, Paul had his team. They were together. So our lives have got to match it too. Paul writes about how they were holy and blameless. He's saying, and my life matched what I said. My life matched what I said. For example, if I go to someone and I said, um, oh, well, I follow Jesus and I really do think that in, in my life that he will provide for me. But in my next breath I'm saying, uh, but I'm really worried because Rob's going to lose his job and I don't know what to do about it and I think I might need to go and get another job to pay for it. And I'm visibly, you know, struggling then that's not really matching, is it? That's not to say that I don't feel all those things as well, but there has to be an element of, but I know God will help me in there. That's got to be in my conversation, hasn't it? Otherwise, my life's not matching what I say. If we're saying, um, I'm really trusting God will guide me, then I have to have something in my life that shows that I am trusting that he'll guide me. The integrity has to be not only in words, but in our actions as well. If we say, I believe in a God who loves all people, but I actually really don't like anyone, it's not matching, is it? If I say, my God is a God of compassion, but I just walk past someone who needs help, it's not matching up. But Paul says, he says, he's, he's so, he says, make me accountable almost. You are the witnesses of how holy and righteous and blameless we were. That's serious accountability, isn't it? Because they could have come back and go, no, you weren't. Really. So what about you? Are you more worried about what others think or God? Right, we're going to look at the second one, love. What were the biggest factors that influenced you in coming to follow Jesus? Have a little think about that. What was it that really, you know, obviously the Holy Spirit, without any doubt, we can't do anything without him. But how did he, what did, what did God use? What did he use? For most people, it's a one-on-one connection. It will be a family member or a close friend that had a massive influence on them. Um, it won't have been a big altar call. It might have been an altar call, but the fact, the big deciding influence will not have been some random person saying, come to Jesus, because you've got no connection with them. It's going to be someone who loved you who showed you, who demonstrated, who witnessed, who had integrity, who lived it out, who shared it with you. Paul writes this about himself. He writes loads and loads, but I'm just going to pull out a few things. He says that they were like young children. They were humble. Like Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be like the youngest. 
He says, just as nursing mother cares for her children. Paul, like, grapples for this image. How can I even describe how I feel about you? Well, like a nursing mother, that's pretty extreme and tense. I know that when I um, first had a baby, um, yeah, I was a little bit like a lioness. I could have quite happily gone for someone if they tried to get between me and my child. I remember one day in church, I was stuck in the hall, and there was a guy at the back, and he was he had a little bit too much to drink. And I practically beat the crash door down to get in there to protect my child. And this is the image that Paul is using of how he feels about these guys. He says, we cared for you because we loved you so much. We delighted to share not only um, with you the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And the word lives it can also be transported, translated as souls. So the depth of his love is beyond just, I'm just going to tell you these words. Have a great day. Bye. He intensely loves them. Um, this is going to be more, isn't it? Paul says elsewhere, um, there it is, about how um, when he was separated them, he felt like they'd been orphaned. This word I read is like someone's died. It's like a tragedy. It's like your child has died. This is immense, isn't it? Now, <laughs> I don't know, when I read that, I thought, he is seriously in love with these people. I don't think I'm anywhere near that. But I don't think we should excuse ourselves because in the New Testament, we see this picture of family love again and again and again, don't we? Um, In Romans, we say devoted to one another in brotherly love or the um, common English version says love each other as brothers and sisters. And we might struggle a bit with that because our families are messed up and today, well, how often do I see my brother? Twice a year? But I don't think that's what the New Testament meant by brotherly love, did they? These were close-knit communities where the family worked as a whole. They weren't nuclear families. They were a family where everyone lived together and you build another apartment on top of your house and family is the most important thing to you. And you're intensely entwined in their lives and you work together and you love each other and you bring up your children together. This is what Paul is talking about, not how we see families now, where we live in this very spaced out, mixed up world of where we don't talk to our families. So I think, you know, when it comes to church, are we willing to share our life, our soul, perhaps with people in the community? Because of a lot of us, because of the environment we live in, because of the culture we live in, we think family is getting together twice a year or on a birthday to have a meal. Because that's what my family looks like, if I'm honest, twice a year and for birthday meals. And we sit around and make polite conversation. Now, some of you I know will have great families where you love each other and you're tensely in each other's lives, but that's not my family. But this is the family that is described in the New Testament. This is church. These are people who come to faith and have lost their family. Their family's rejected them. This is their only family. And for some of us sitting here, this is our only family. We don't have other family. But if it's just sitting on a Sunday morning, have a cup of tea and go home, 
Well, I think we just question, is that family? I know for me, how much am I sharing my life with others in this community? My soul? That's quite nice. I'll have you for Sunday dinner, but um, please don't turn up at any other time. Do you see what I mean? I think we've got a long way to go, all of us. Not, I'm not you know, pointing at anyone. I'm just saying, this is the love we're aspiring to. So let's move on to our final one. And the final one's trials. When do you think your faith has grown the most? When do you think your faith has grown the most? Okay, I'm going to give a few examples. My first one was a breakup of a relationship. Devastated, emotionally distraught. I will die. I was very young. (laughs) You know, you think that's the end of it. But that was a key point in my life that God entered my life. And whoosh, I knew then I'm living for you, God, not for anything else. Second one, my job was awful. I wanted to die. It was so bad. Praying, God, please help me. Make me a better teacher. Please help me to love these children that are driving me mental. No, he didn't. I was awful. Awful. I realized that actually just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I can dive into an inner city school with children with problems and bring the word. No, it didn't work. I'm good with children that are nice. That's what I've learned. Nice children. I have a great time with them. But what did God do in that? He transformed the course of my life massively. He took my job away. I couldn't just sit in there for the next 40 years. I said yes to things I'd never have said yes to. I ended up in a completely another an Arabic country in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even know where it was. I then ended up at Bible college. I then ended up here... I would have never happened without this horrendous time in my life. And in the times when I've grown, it's been when I couldn't depend on anything else. I had to see God come through. And God uses trials in our lives to, perf- to do three things. Okay, three things. Firstly, you can be delivered from this trial. So you can pray, please make this happen, and God does. And in that case, our faith is built up. Okay. The second one, we can be delivered through this trial. And in that case, your faith will be, to, will be proved genuine. And the third one, you can be delivered by this trial straight into his arms. And in this case... Your faith is perfected. I'm just going to look at those three because I want to say this morning that trials are normal. They are part of the Christian life. They are not what God intended at the beginning. God did not bring suffering into this world. He did not choose that. But he uses them in an amazing way in the Christian life. So just to break them up a bit, number one... You can be delivered from the trial, you escape it. So, for example, you get cancer, you pray, Lord, please take my cancer away. The next time you go to the doctor, the doctor says, hey, this is a miracle. I can't can't believe what I'm saying. 
Okay, the second one, through the door, you get cancer, you get a doctor, he says, oh yeah, it's getting worse, you have the treatment, it goes on two years later, you're through it, okay? But you've stuck with God, you haven't abandoned God. Third one, you've got cancer, you do the trial, you do, do all the thing, and you don't get healed. But your faith is perfected. Let's look at some of the verses that go with that. This is the one about um, your faith being proved genuine. It's from um, First Peter, where um, it's a lot about trials and persecution. Not another great, great book. It says, um, In this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that set your, the proven genuine um, come so that your, well, that doesn't make sense. Proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You can't really refine anything without a bit of heat. And God wants to refine our, our faith. He wants to stretch it. He wants to see what it's made of. And in that, it's proved genuine. Let's look at the Hebrews passage. The important bits here is um, verse 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. So when we are enduring in trials and we stand there, we know that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. And no matter what happens, we will sit down with Jesus. It's okay. And the problem is we don't really know how great that is. So we think this is quite good where we are, even though we're suffering trials. These guys in Thessalonica were in immediate trials. He says, Brothers and sisters became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people. So it's the hands of the community that they're suffering. Maybe their friends, maybe their family. When I um, got to Lebanon, I heard about the Civil War. And there, um, the local community and the Christians lived alongside each other. And they grew up together and they shared meals together and they were friends and they did business together. And overnight, the Christians were dragged into the square in the center of the towns and were assassinated one at a time. Gunshot, gunshot, gunshot from their friends that they grew up with, they went to school with, their neighbors. And for many of them, their faith was perfected that day. But they had to be ready. It reminded me of in Daniel when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, before King Nebuchadnezzar, say to him, um, we don't need to defend ourselves against you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, um, your majesty, that we will not serve gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And that resolve was seen in these very early baby Christians. When we face trials of all sorts, which we are to expect 
and not be surprised at. We need to know that my God is able to rescue me. He is able to sustain me. And even if he doesn't, he will perfect me. And I'm not going to bend the knee to any other God. So let's look at this. What about us? How will you endure? Have you resolved to serve and love and follow Jesus no matter what the trials ahead? No matter what the trials ahead. Because it's the resolve that you make now that will help you in the then. And this is the verse I want to leave us with. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Power and the Holy Spirit. Because we can look at these things today and think, I'm failure. I'm never going to be good enough. Well, that's okay. That's true, isn't it? We are failures. We're not going to be good enough. We are not perfect. We have not been perfected. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We should never forget that. We should never let that drift from our minds or think, oh, it's just so hard right now and I, I just can't. No. We need to be saying, Jesus, every day, I need you desperately. I need you to change me. I need you to give me courage. I need you to give me the words to say to this person. I need you to show me what to do. I depend on you 100%. I cannot do this without you. And that's okay. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, when we look at these three things, integrity, love, and endurance, we know that we cannot do it without you. It is impossible. And the very fact that we know you would be impossible without your Holy Spirit showing us who you are. But Father, we want to say today as a church community that we want to be people of integrity, that are bold in sharing you with others, that have lives that match up. We want to be a community that love each other. We so need your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts that we can love each other. And we want to be with each other. And Father, when we come to trials, we want to be ready with that resolve. We want to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. We want to know the power of God to help us endure when we just want to give up. Jesus, we need you. May your Holy Spirit strengthen us today as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.